Well, before we begin in God's word today, we will be celebrating communion. So at home, if you have not prepared the elements, uh, please just find a moment to do that. And if you came in this morning and did not pick up one of the prepackaged elements, you can get that in the foyer. We'll also have the ushers coming around at the uh, communion time, and you can raise your hand if you didn't get one, and they'll uh, pass that down to you. Well, toward the end of the 19th century, Swedish chemist uh, Alfred Nobel woke up one morning, and as he was reading the newspaper, he was shocked to see his own obituary in it. And uh, as he read it, it said, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, and he died a very rich man. Now, it was actually Alfred's older brother who had died, but the account had a profound impact on him. As he thought about how he was being remembered, he decided he wanted to leave a legacy other than developing the means to kill people efficiently and for amassing a fortune in the process. And thus he established the Nobel Peace Prize, the famous award that is given to those who advance the cause of peace. Nobel said every man ought to have the chance to correct his own epitaph in midstream and write a new one. Well, as we turn in our Bible today to 1 Peter chapter 4, what we're going to see is that through Christ, we've been given the opportunity to correct the mistakes of our past and to change the way that we live our life. So I invite you to turn with me now in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4, where I want to begin reading verses 1 through 9. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time is already pa- the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, and in all this. They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer." Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now you'll notice that verse 1 begins with the word therefore, and therefore points us back to what we saw in chapter 3. Peter is tying all of this together where he says the suffering in the flesh, he's pointing back to the death of Christ. As we saw in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, as we talked about last time, what that means is Jesus bought us, and he brought us back to God as he shed his blood on the cross to pay that penalty of death we owed for our sins. And Peter is mentioning the death of Christ here, not just to remind us of what saves us from our sins, but he's also doing this to say this is an example for us as Christians to follow. As you look at this, he says we're to be like Christ, arming ourselves with the same purpose that he had. 
the Greek word for arming is actually a military term. It described a soldier who put on his armor and takes up his weapons. In modern times today, Peter might write, put on your battle rattle and go out beyond the wire as you go into, into the war. As Christians, we are involved in a war. There's a war being waged right now. The scriptures tell us all around us that we, we wage a war not against flesh and blood, but with uh, the principalities, the rulers of the air. There's a spiritual battle that takes place. And as Christians, we're involved in a war. Uh, and Peter points out that the battleground begins here. It's in our minds. Because the New American Standard, this translation that I read from each week, uh, has the word purpose. Some of you are using a King James Version where you'll see mind, and the New International Version has attitude. The Greek word that is used here is uh, enoion, and it literally means intent, pointing to how we think. It's, it's speaking of how we think. So as Peter is talking about this battle and preparing and arming ourselves, he, he says we begin with our minds because it's the control center of our bodies. It not only uh, controls our attitude, it controls all of our actions. And so he tells us to focus our thoughts here on Christ and then to seek to follow his example. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has already won the war. He defeated sin, death, and Satan at the cross. We are ultimately victorious as a part of his family. And yet what God says is there is a daily battle that as we live our lives here on earth that we have to fight. And what he does here is he's pointing back to the example of Christ, and he says you need to follow Christ, uh, telling us in verse 1, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that's our ultimate goal. Ultimately, when we're home in heaven, our sin nature is gone. We no longer, uh, we will be made perfect, so we are no longer capable of sin. But while we live here on earth, we are not sinless. But we can, and we are called to sin less and less. And this happens uh, through the things that Peter is talking about here today. As we read in Romans 6, 6 through 7, uh, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. He goes on to say in Romans six eleven through 13, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What this is telling us is we as believers have been redeemed. We have been set free from the penalty of death. And God says as such, you don't have to go back to living your old dead way of life. Instead, as he tells us here in 1 Peter 4, 2 through 3, we're to choose the path of those who have been set free he says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, while some of us could give personal examples of what that looks like from our life, others of you may be saying, well, Roger, these sins aren't at the top of my list. And that's fantastic if that's true, but I'll remind you that every one of us makes the list as sinners. 
Because Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As Peter lists these things here, it's not an exhaustive list. He, he, he's not saying, well, these are the things. What he's making the point of is saying all of us here have wasted enough of our lives living for our lust instead of for the Lord. And what he calls on us to do here is to pursue Christ, to leave that old lifestyle behind. Now, as we're doing this, look at the warning that he gives us. Because he says we will face opposition from those that we used to run around with. First Peter 4.4 4 says, And in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. When it says they are surprised, it means to be astonished, to be shocked. It includes the idea of being offended. Uh, how many of you can think of a friend group or people you used to hang around with who now that you've said, I need to separate myself from that, I don't want to live that way anymore, uh, they'll, they'll say to you, what, are you too good for us? Are you holier than thou? Do you uh, think you're, you're, you're better than us? And this is what Peter's talking about when he says they will malign you. Uh, when, Peter, when people in Peter's day became believers, they stopped taking part in the pagan festivals that were taking place. Remember, this was a culture steeped in the worship of pagan gods and goddesses. They had sacrifices where the food that was sold in the marketplace came out of the temples, and that's why there was all this confusion about can Christians eat this meat that had been sacrificed to idols or not. And so what was happening is, uh, there were those in that day who were saying, well, Christians are antisocial. They're against the government. Uh, they're seeking to tear down society. You read Ephesians where uh, the guild that had the whole support of the pagan goddess Artemis said it's destroying the economy. They're turning people away from these things. And in our day, these things are said about us as well. Uh, people will say you're antisocial, you're against the government, or in our day, the, the, the worst case scenario is you're called intolerant, right? We live in a day and age where people will tolerate anybody and anything as long as you're not a Christian who is following the Bible. You know, people can wreck their bodies, they can destroy their homes, they can ruin their lives by running from one sin to another, and even their supposed friends will say nothing about it, but let somebody become sober or an immoral person pure, and people will start to say, well, look at Mr. or Miss Goody Two-Shoes. Look at these people who think they're better than us. The media will malign and mock a person who's living a life set apart to God. Fear and peer pressure are used in our day to try to drag people down into the mud uh, to make you live and look just like everyone else. As you look at your life, as you think about what your life looks like after coming to Christ, would you or others who know you say that there's a noticeable difference? Would people say that you now love the Lord and his word more than what the world offers? Has coming to Christ made a difference in what you do or whom you hang out with? Now, when it comes to living for God, this doesn't mean you're not supposed to be around non-believers. Friends, don't hear me saying you're to get in a holy huddle. You're to separate yourself from anybody who's not a Christian. Uh, this, that's not what it's talking about. God wants us to be involved with those who don't know him. He just doesn't want us to look and live like those who don't know him. 
as we're around these non-believers, we should be showing God's love. We should be sharing our faith in the hopes that they too will come to faith. Now, if they don't accept God's gift of grace, what Peter tells us is there is a time coming, a penalty that they will have to pay, a penalty of death. As verse 5 says, they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, the Greek word used here is an accounting term. It actually means they have to answer and pay back what they owe for the life of sin they've lived. Now, I want you to hear this clearly. There is no way that you and I can pay back what we owe apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is not a person who can earn their way to God by how good they've been. There is no amount of penance. There's no amount of good works you can do to save yourself. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. But what Peter is telling us here is God is a holy and a just God. And when there is sin, the penalty has to be paid. And he says, for those who reject the payment that Jesus made, then they have to make the payment personally. The scriptures tell us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Wages are what we earn. Wages are what we deserve for how we've lived our lives. And he says, as those of us who are sinners, and that's all of us, remember, Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. He says, as those who owe a penalty of death, we have to have it paid. We can either have Christ be the one who paid it, or we can pay it ourselves. And what he says is those who have rejected Jesus will be rejected by him. They will be eternally separated in a place of punishment. Now, notice here that there are Christians who are punished for their faith. This is what Peter's talking about in verse 6. It's saying that they suffered death as martyrs. When it says in verse 6, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, this isn't saying walk through the cemeteries and preach the gospel to dead people. What it's saying is those who were alive and heard and responded to the gospel are now dead. So these are believers. It says, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, though they are judged in the flesh as men. This is talking about how the world martyred them. They said, you've gone against uh, society. You've broken laws. You owe uh, this penalty in the flesh as men. But it says they may live in the spirit. This is speaking to their eternal life according to the will of God. So again, to understand verse 6, this is those who were judged in the flesh by other men and condemned to martyrdom, but they are alive in the spirit, having this new life in Christ. And God is saying they will be rewarded for him for their faithfulness. When they passed from the earth, they were taken home to heaven. Earlier in this book, when we were back in 1 Peter 1, 17 through 25, uh, you'll remember we talked about the Bema judgment seat, the Bematos, which is the Greek word that is used there in Romans 14.10, 1 Corinthians 3.10 and following, and 2 Corinthians 5.10, speaks of the judgment seat that a believer goes before. In Revelation 20, there's something called the great white throne judgment. That's where the non-Christian goes. The believers, when we die, we go immediately into the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And once we are in his presence, our life is looked at, and we are judged for how we lived our life here on earth. Not to determine whether we get into heaven, we're already there. The ticket was purchased, paid for by Jesus, and and we acquired it through our faith and, and believing in him. And once we are home in heaven, our life is looked at 
to determine how well we lived our life for the Lord and are thus given rewards. And so what Peter is talking about in this passage is he's saying some of us will find ourselves home with the Lord sooner than we expect. Sooner than we expect. It could be that you will die earlier than you thought. But what he's pointing to here is not that the time of our death is near, but the time of Christ's return is near. Because you'll notice in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. You see, those who were living in Peter's day were looking for the return of Christ. They believed the rapture was imminent. And every generation of faithful followers of Christ have, have believed that in their lifetime. And friends, I believe it today. I believe the rapture could happen at this very moment. Wouldn't that be awesome? All of us who are Christians would suddenly, boom, go together right now. And that would be awesome. Jesus says in Revelation twenty two twenty, I am coming quickly. Now, Christ has not yet returned. We say, well, he's been gone for 2,000 years. Well, friends, the Bible says a 1,000 years is like a day to Jesus. So he's only been gone two days in God's time. The return is imminent. And you're saying, well, Roger, I don't want to wait 2,000 more years uh, for Christ to return. So why hasn't he returned? Well, last week we talked about the patience of God. You'll remember in 2 Peter 3, 9, we saw the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The whole reason that God has delayed his return to this point is because of his great mercy, his patience toward us, knowing that when the rapture occurs, the time of tribulation, the seven years of intense suffering that will come upon the earth will begin. Many will come to faith in Christ during that time. But they will go through terrible, terrible suffering. And so because God's saying, I don't want people to go through this, he's been patient in his return. But he is coming back. He will come back. He will judge both the living and the dead, as Peter tells us. Only God knows the day when he will return. It's not our job to set the day to some try to do. It's our job as believers to be ready for the return of Christ when that time comes. Now, while we're waiting, we're not to isolate ourselves as some do. Verse 7 says we are to use sound judgment and spend time in prayer. Uh, As Peter tells us this, I want to remind you that he knows firsthand how important this is. If you've ever read in Mark chapter 14, you know as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane preparing to go to the cross to be crucified, you remember he told the disciples to watch and pray. Mark 14, 37 through 38 says, And Jesus came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, the one writing this book, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Peter found out personally just how true that statement was. Because later when the opportunity came to uh, deny Jesus, he did it three times in order to save his earthly life at that moment. Instead of standing firm for Christ, he he denied that he knew Jesus three times. Now later, he was crucified for his faith in Christ. But what Peter is saying is he knows personally the importance of this. He says, prepare ourselves through prayer and to be ready. How many of us can say that we are ready for the return of Christ? 
When I mentioned that the rapture could happen at this very moment, how many of you thought, yes, I wish it would. I wish we could just go right now. I want to say, are you ready? I'm not, I'm not asking if you want it to happen, but if you knew for sure, and I'm not setting this date, so don't, don't hear me say that, but if I told you next week, next Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, Jesus Christ is coming back, uh, is there something you would do differently between now and Tuesday to be ready for the, Christ, for the return of Christ? How many of us are thinking, well, I need to go home and I need to clean some things up? I need not, not, I'm not talking about your house. I'm talking about maybe the, your computer where you're saying, you know, I've got some stuff on my computer that doesn't belong. I've got some files or links to some pornographic sites that I want to get rid of. I've got a stash of something in the house or somewhere else at work or in my car or, or some other secret location where I've got uh, stuff that doesn't belong, whether it's pornography or drugs or alcohol or, or some other secret sin that you're hiding. How many of us would say, you know, there's, there's somebody that my relationship with is not right, and before I see the Prince of Peace, I want to make peace with this person, a family member, a former friend, uh, a person at work or school that I'm at odds with. How many of us would say, I need, a, I need to restore that relationship? Is there someone you would want to share your faith with? Are you thinking about a family member, a friend, a neighbor that you're saying, well, Roger, if Christ is coming back on Tuesday and then this terrible time of suffering is going to begin, I don't want them to go through that. And so I need, I need to be diligent before Tuesday to share my faith. Whatever it is that you were just thinking about, whether or not Christ comes back on Tuesday or not, what is keeping you from doing that now? If you're thinking, these are things I need to do, steps I need to take so that I would be ready for the return of Christ, why not do it now? Jesus could be coming back today. He could be coming back Tuesday, or he may delay. We don't know when Christ is coming back, but we do know that he will. And we do know that he wants us living as we should, as Peter tells us in our passage today. Something else we can be doing is seen in verse 8 where we're told, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. In John thirteen thirty five, Jesus Christ tells us, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Bible tells us that as people see believers gathered, as they see Christian men and women, boys and girls together in fellowship, there's something attractional about it. And they say, we want what you have. How do, we, how do we come into a community like this? How do we have that relationship with the Lord and with one another? There's no better witness than when believers are living in a, in a Christian love for each other. And on the flip side, there's no greater damage to our testimony than when Christians are at war with each other. We're told the type of love we're to have for each other is to be fervent. This word means deep or intense. A literal translation, is it full stretch or strained? Now, I didn't see the Kentucky Derby this week. Some of you may have. Uh, And as you watch that race, you would have seen those horses at a full gallop coming into the finish line. And this this word was actually used to describe a horse that was at full gallop. It was also used to describe an athlete uh, where you've seen these runners 
as the, the man or woman coming into the finish line will lean into the tape. They'll stretch out. Some of them even literally throw themselves over the finish line. They're at this full stretch, straining for the finish line. And this is what Peter is telling us our love should look like. There should be this all-out effort. Sometimes it is stretched to the very limits by the demands that are made on it. He goes on to say this type of love covers a multitude of sins. And I want you to notice he doesn't, he, he said covers, not covers up. This type of love covers a multitude of sins. What's the difference between covering and covering up? Imagine that you went to your doctor because you said, you know, I have this mole that doesn't look right. I, and, and, and your doctor looks at it and he or she says, hmm, I want to I study that a little further. It doesn't quite look right. Maybe they do a biopsy. And the doctor gets the results back and it says, well, it's a, it's a malignant tumor. You've got melanoma. And this doctor goes to, to their colleagues and they say, hey, Roger, Roger has uh, melanoma. But, you know, if I tell him he has this, this deadly cancer, it's going to, you know, hurt his feelings. He's, he's going to not feel good. He's, he's going to be scared. He's going to, you know, worry. And, and, and I don't want to do that to him. So what I'm going to do instead is go in and tell him everything's okay. And, and your doctor comes back to you and, and you say, well, doc, what, what, what do you think about this? And the doctor says, you know, you don't need to look at that. And they put a Band-Aid over it, just covers it up and says, uh, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. Is that a good doctor? No, that's medical malpractice. And it's the same thing with Christians. Some of us practice Christian malpractice because we see a sin. We, we see something going on in a, in a friend or a family member's life, and we say, you know, I don't, I don't want to you know, confront them. I don't want to make them feel bad. I don't want to have the relationship kind of feel strained. Um, so I'm just going to cover it up. Real love doesn't cover up. It doesn't condone sin. It deals with it. It identifies it. Proverbs 27.6 tells us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And this is what Peter's talking about, where we see the sin, we deal with the sin, but we deal with it as Christ dealt with our sin. There was a man by the name of Robert Thornton, and he said his parents always seemed to be at odds with each other. And there would be uh, fights in the home periodically, verbal, you know, back and forth with each other. And he says, one time my parents were having a very memorable disagreement. And my father and my mom, they were sitting at the kitchen table and they were arguing and talking about all the past hurts that each other had done. And finally, he says, my dad got up and he got two pieces of paper and two pencils. And he came back to the table and he put a piece of paper in front of my mom with a pencil. And then he sat down on the other side of the table with a pencil and paper, and he said, listen, I want you to write down everything you don't like about me. I want you to write down everything I've done to hurt you, and I'm going to do the same thing about you. And so he starts out, and he writes something on the paper. He looks up at his wife, and he scowls at her. So she picks up her pencil, and she writes something down. And then he looks at her, he does it again, she does it, and back and forth each time the dad would write fervently, scowl at his wife, she was doing it. And he said, this went on for a little while, they covered the front, turned it over, started going down the back of the paper. And uh, finally he says, my dad stood up and he says, okay, let's exchange our papers. And 
He slid his paper over to his wife. She gave him his, and they both looked at their paper, and he said immediately, my mom said, give me my paper back. Because as she looked at the paper that her husband had written, on every single line he had written, I love you, I love you, I love you. You can imagine what she had written down. It didn't say, I love you, I love you. (laughs) That's the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins. It's willing to set aside hurts. It's willing to cover the faults of another as Christ covered our faults. Friends, every one of us have pages and pages of ways that we have hurt God, pages of ways we have sinned and disobeyed God. And over each line of our sin, God wrote, I love you. As Romans 5.8 says, he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love you, I love you, I love you, God said. And he spread his arms wide and he died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins and mine. In verse 1, we were called to have the same attitude as Christ. And here we're called to put feet to our faith and show this love of Christ to others. Another way we can show love is seen in verse 9 where it says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. There was a husband who was at home with his family. They had invited friends over. It was one of those days where they had spent the day kind of rushing around trying to get ready. They had to clean the house. They had to fix the food. There was a lot of stress in the home. Uh, Finally, the time came. The table was set. The meal was ready. Company was sitting all around the table. Everybody's dressed nicely and smiling at each other. And uh, the father turns to their six-year-old daughter and says, Honey, uh, why don't you say grace? Why don't you say the blessing for, for our friends? And the little girl kind of sheepishly looks over at her father and says, Dad, I don't, I don't know what to say. And she says, Oh, honey, of course you know what to say. Uh, just say what you always hear your mom pray. Just say what you hear your mom say, right? So the little girl says, Okay. They bow their heads and she says, Dear Lord, why did I invite all these people over today? <laughs> You know, showing hospitality without complaining sometimes is hard to do, isn't it? I want you to remember as Peter writes these words what the context is. It's the first century. It's a time where they didn't have hotels and inns like we do. Back in the the first century, there were very few places you could go if you were a traveler. And the Middle Eastern culture of hospitality said that any stranger was to be welcomed into a home and taken care of. You didn't want to stay in the few ends that were available. They were places of of thievery. They were dirty. They were not safe places. So there were always people needing to be housed and fed. In addition to the normal cultural requirements, as Christians, they were called to show the love of Christ. They were called to go above and beyond uh, this first level. And then remember, this backdrop is where Rome is persecuting Christians. That means that many have lost their jobs. They've lost their homes. So there would have been even more people needing to be housed and hosted, and not just for a few days, but maybe permanently as they had no other place to go. And going beyond just the inconvenience of housing these people, uh, there was a risk because these Christians who had lost their jobs and homes were already on the government watch list. They were labeled as criminals, insurrectionists. And if you took somebody like that into your home, you suddenly were on the government's radar where you were now aiding and abetting a criminal and you too could be charged uh, or have your own home taken from you. 
But in spite of all this, the early Christians were known for their love, their hospitality, their care shown to others who were in need. You can read Acts chapter 2. And it talks about how those who had were sharing with those who were in need. And it was this love that was attracting others. The world around was looking and saying, why are you believers so different? What do you have that we don't? We want it. And this was part of what was growing the church and adding to the fellowship numbers daily as people saw this love for one another. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about Wayside this past week. I thought about our church and I said, is Wayside Chapel a place that demonstrates this kind of love to others? And I just want to brag on you for a moment. I just want to say that as I think about our church, while we are not perfect, this is a place where I see so many examples over and over of brothers and sisters in Christ reaching out, those who who share with others, those who give not just of their treasure, but their time, their talents. I mean, just an example of that was yesterday. Uh, You know we've had a long-term partnership with Colonial Hills Elementary. It's a public elementary school here in our city. It's just a few miles from our church, right here inside Loop 410. It's an underserved school that has uh, multiple uh, languages and, and people groups that are part of the school there. There are three main groups uh, there. We have English, Spanish, and uh, a Middle Eastern language from Iran and Afghanistan, Pashto, that is spoken there. Middle Eastern script that has to be uh, constantly communicated in materials there because of the different groups. And yesterday, one of the, the Serve Our City opportunities that you heard advertised about was we had a group that went out to Colonial Hills. Now, originally, we were going to rebuild the garden, the community garden that our church actually put in 10 years ago, and it needs to be uh, updated because all the woods rotted out. But, you know, we've had these torrential rains that have happened. So uh, we went to Plan B and built a gaga ball pit. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a big uh, octagon thing where kids get in there and uh, they play uh, a game where they slap a ball around and um, have, a, have a lot of fun. And 14 people yesterday, thankfully it was a covered area, uh, built this gaga ball pit. And so Monday morning, you know, when the playground that's all muddy and washed out, the kids are going to be able to go in there and play. It's just another way to serve our community, to serve our teachers, this this school that has very little resources. uh, And you as a church made that happen. Uh, Two weeks ago, I got an email from a serviceman in our church, a military member of our church who's deployed, and he uh, sent me an email and said in one of the previous storms there had been some damage to a chimney where a limb came down, and now the home uh, had a a number of issues, and he's, he's deployed overseas, and he's like, my wife and kids are there, and I don't know what to do. And I said, we'll take care of it. I I passed that on to our Amen ministry, which is a group of men in our church who serve those who serve us, these deployed military families. They went out, they took care of that need and some other needs that were in, in the home. And it was able to put this person overseas who's serving our our country and our families, knowing my family's been taken care of by the family of God. We have our agape ministry, that Greek word for love, that many of you give to the Agape Fund. And that has been used during COVID and before to to come alongside families who are in need that are dealing with loss of work, that uh, families that end up with a, uh, you know, suddenly an emergency crisis in their home financially or medically or other things. This is just one of the ways that people in our church step in as the hands and feet of God. And you serve families every single week 
uh, through the Agape ministry. You know about our Ivywood homes that we have over here. Uh, if you don't, our church owns 11 of the homes on Ivywood Circle next door, and we have Sunday school classes and midweek activities that meet in there. Uh, we, have a, we host our, the Young Life Deaf Ministry. We have an American Sign Language training that goes on over there. There's studies all throughout the week. And there are two homes that are set up. They're fully furnished. We furlough missionaries in those homes. Jason mentioned that prayer guide this morning during the announcements. I'd, I'd recommend you pick one up on the way out or go online and get that so you can see who our mission partners are and pray for them. Well, we had our mission partners from Jordan, the country of Jordan, who were here last week who were furloughed in one of the houses, and they were able to come in and find a place just to, to unpack and be at home and, and, and just have a home away from home. And right before that, we had a group that had traveled down from Minnesota, a four-person group, as they heard about the migrant crisis going on at the border. Uh, they said they contacted us. It's, it was another uh, partner church in our denomination who said, hey, we don't know what to do. You guys are kind of at ground zero. What's Wayside doing? And they sent a four-person team down to uh, see what we do through our Immigrant Hope Ministry. We've had a, a ministry to refugees in our city for years that has been ongoing. They went and shadowed the work we're doing there. They went to Freeman Coliseum to see how can we serve and what's going on. We connected them uh, through another pastor that I, I know in Laredo, and they spent a couple of days in Laredo to see what's happening there. And now they've traveled home back to Minnesota to say, how are we as a church going to enter in? And they sent a note saying, thank you so much for helping us to see how we as a body can lead into and, and meet some of these needs. These are just, I could go on and on about various ways that I see every single week the things that Wayside does. Sunday morning is where we see hospitality in action. Now, I'll tell you, this past year, as you know, with COVID, has been a challenge for everybody. And I think as a church, we've lost a step or two in the way that we welcome and, and come around visitors and others who are new to our property. Uh, we've been able to reopen our welcome center, but you've heard me say before that I want the whole church to be a welcome center, not just, hey, go meet the pastor, get the information there. And it's been hard uh, to welcome people on a Sunday morning when we show up and everybody's wearing a mask and you can't see somebody smile. Uh, I, I miss our greeting time during the service. We're working toward putting that back in where we used to hug each other and shake hands and do things, but you know we're not quite ready to, to move to that stage. If you're saying, well, hey, Roger, I'm, I'm comfortable bumping fist or doing an elbow bump, that's great. Others are not, uh, but we can all wave, right? We can all look at somebody and say, I see you. Uh, I acknowledge you're here. I'm waving at you. We can smile with our eyes. We can uh, do other things. But it's hard uh, to, to linger and fellowship with each other when we've been having you come in one way, sit separate from each other, uh, then go out another way. And there's, you know, I miss some of that fellowship time and opportunity. And visitors especially miss it. Those who have not been here, you know, there's not a Sunday that goes by that somebody doesn't come up to me and say, Roger, this is our first Sunday back in a year, our first Sunday. And they have tears as they're saying, we've missed this. And those of you who are worshiping online, we know some of you are not yet able to come back uh, for various reasons, and we miss seeing you, but uh, we're here when you're ready to return. And so 
I'm going to just ask you to, you know, think again about people around you. And are you making them feel welcome when they come on our property? Some of you will remember uh, uh, a lady by the name of Dear Abby. There, Abigail Van Buren used to have a column in the newspaper called Dear Abby. And people would write in with questions or share stories. And there was a guy by the name of John Charles who sent Abby this letter years ago. Uh, He said, I'm completing the second of a three-year survey on the hospitality or lack of it in churches. To date, of the 195 churches I've visited, I was spoken to in only one of the churches by somebody other than the official greeters, and that was when they asked me to move my feet. (laughs) What if that man or woman had visited Wayside Chapel this morning? What would their experience be as they walked out of Wayside? Would we have changed uh, what a person like this would write? Or would they say, nobody even talked to me? Now, again, I understand with COVID, many of us have gotten used to kind of isolating and separating ourselves. And that's where people miss community even so much more. People who are not around and they come to church thinking, I'm going to come in and I'm going to be in a community and I'm going to be made to feel welcome. I'm going to see and experience the love of Christ. Did you talk to somebody in the hallway, in the parking lot? If you're part of our Sunday studies, our adult Bible fellowships, our other classes that meet, uh, I know that, again, for some of us, we haven't seen friends in months or, or a year. And when they're back, we we run over and we want to say hi and we want to spend the the time with them. But I'm just asking you to think of your circle and make it a horseshoe where you open it up a little and say, is there somebody else sitting in this classroom? Is there somebody else sitting around me uh, that I don't know? You may be saying, yeah, I know they're sitting in my seat this morning. Uh, well, that means they have the same good taste as you. They, want, they wanted the same seat as you. So introduce yourself. They may be your new best friend. And, and just say to the person, we're so glad you're here. Uh, get to know their name, their story. It's, it's just ways that we can, we can show hospitality to others. Some of you this morning are going to go home to a house full of family and friends. But there are others who are going to walk out of this door and go home to an apartment or a house where they're all alone, and they've been all alone. They've been isolated for weeks or months. Just think about your own home and ask yourself, when is the last time you had somebody in your home? Now, again, I understand with COVID, it's been difficult to do that. But uh, even if you think back to pre-COVID, what would your neighbor say about you? Would they say the only time that they see you is when you pull into your driveway and go, the garage door comes up, maybe you wave at them, you go in, the garage door comes down. Have they ever been in your home? Do they know you? Do they know your story? Friends, when we share the good news of the gospel and we say God wants you to be with him in heaven forever, they wonder, well, do you want me to be in heaven with you forever when I haven't even been in your own home yet? I mean, these are just ways in why Peter is saying we need to practice hospitality. As we open our hearts, as we open our homes, our circles, it can lead to open hearts for the Lord. I want you to look back over this passage, everything we've talked about today. Look at what Peter has said and ask God to help you apply it in your life this week. It could be finding a way to show hospitality, as we just talked about. 
It may be looking at what we looked at in the beginning about setting aside uh, an area of lust in our life. It could be our old way of thinking where we put on the, the armor of God with a new attitude like Christ had, thinking as he thinks. We were called to be fervent in our love for one another. We were called to share our faith. We're called to be people who are, are persons of prayer. As Peter reminds us today, our time on earth is short, so we need to be ready for when Christ returns. Well, as we end today, we're coming to the communion table. As we come to the communion table, it's a reminder to us of God and his great love. Again, as you came in, you should have gotten one of these. The ushers are going to be coming down the aisle with a plate. If you didn't get a, a communion elements and you'd like those, just raise your hand so they can see you and, and get that for you. There's some up here at the front, please, and over here. Uh, the communion table is open to all who are believers in Jesus Christ. Rick, we have people up here at the front and over to the side. Um, the communion table is open to those who are believers in Christ. So whether you're a part of Wayside or you're visiting with us for the first time today, or those of you who are online at home, if you'll take the elements you've prepared, uh, there's nothing unique. You can have saltine crackers and juice. Uh, we just have prepackaged elements here with grape juice and a wafer. There's still a few people over here, please, who need communion elements. Hank, if you could come over here to the front. So as you take these, again, God calls on us as believers to examine our lives, to look at if there's any sin in our life, as Peter was talking about today, that we haven't confessed. So if there's something that you need to do business with God and ask for his forgiveness for something this past week or month, uh, you can do that as we prepare. But to use these elements that we have here, if you'll just tear the very top part of the package open, it'll let you take out the wafer. And this is just a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ. Jesus is called the bread of life in the Bible. And he is one who took on flesh and blood as God's son so that he could go to the cross and take on your sins and mine to be the payment, that penalty that was owed of death, he willingly took on as he died for you and me. And so as we hold this bread, as we are about to take it, it's a reminder to us of what God did for us. It's our way to be reminded of his death, to reminded of his great love for us to say he died in order that we might live. So this represents the body of Christ, the one who died for you and me, eat it in remembrance of him. Now you can open the juice and be careful that you don't spill on yourselves. And what we have here is grape juice. You may have other elements you're using at home, but what it reminds us of is the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of the Lamb, as Peter tells us, that was shed to save us from our sins. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Jesus came. He died in our place. He washed away our sins through the shedding of his blood. And today we remember and thank him for his great sacrifice. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. You join me please as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your great reminder to us of your great love that you were willing to leave your throne in heaven to come to earth 
to live a perfect and sinless life and ultimately to go to the cross as the permanent and perfect sacrifice to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as we're told in John one twenty nine, We thank you, Jesus, that you died so that we might live. We thank you for your gift of grace and eternal life. And as those who have been recipients of this, we are called to go and be your ambassadors to share the good news of who you are and what you did. So send us out now to share the good news of the gospel, to be those who show not only through our life and lips, but with our words and our deeds, who we are as followers of yours. Would you help us, Lord, to live in ways that would draw others to yourself? We know ultimately, God, that you're the one who draws all men and women to yourself, but you use us as your ambassadors. So would we be faithful? We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.